Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast, brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Laura Samara Sands. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Fishers of Men podcast. Uh, Today we have a very special guest. I'm really excited about today's topic. I'm talking today with Father Jason Charon. Is that how you pronounce your name? Yes. Well, if you're from France, it would be Charon. uh, (laughs) I think on this side of the pond, we say uh, Charon, Charon. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. And could you uh, just uh, introduce yourself a little? Sure. Um, well, my name is Father Jason Sharon. I'm a Ukrainian Catholic priest here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, and I belong to the Ukrainian Catholic Eparchy of St. Josephat in Parma, Ohio. I'm uh, originally from Canada, and I have a lovely wife from Ukraine, uh, Helena, and uh, the Lord has blessed us with, with six lovely daughters, and I found that that's a great evangelization tool in a parish. <laughs> 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 and I am a teacher also in, in uh, uh in, in training uh, and background in addition to my, my time in seminary. And I've, I've lived in Eastern Europe for a number of years and uh, my native Canada, obviously, but uh, I've been here in the States for about three or four years now and love every minute of it. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much. I'm So I'm really excited to get this perspective on. We have really not had any perspectives from Eastern Christianity, either Eastern Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. So I'm really excited uh, to hear what you have to say. But first of all, since we have listeners from kind of backgrounds that are all over the map uh, within Christianity, could you explain a little bit about Eastern Rite Catholicism? Oh, excellent. Well, at the risk of, of oversimplification, you know, I, I could say that uh, what really separates us, or not separates us, but uh, makes us distinct is, is definitely the, the Trinitarian aspect of, of our whole, you know, uh, church life. And again, I say these are all oversimplifications because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a Roman Catholic can hear this and say, well, I, I believe in the Trinity. My, my spirituality is Trinitarian, and I'm going to say incarnational. They'll say, my, my spirituality is incarnation as well. I'll say, you know, liturgical, Eucharistic, and they'll say the same thing, and they'll be right. But that being said, there is something different when you walk into uh, an Eastern Catholic Church as opposed to, for example, a Roman Catholic Church. If they weren't different, then, you know, we wouldn't be two distinct traditions. Mm-hmm. So when we say Trinitarian is that everything we do is based in the Trinitarian reality of one God and three divine persons. It's in, I mean, the, the repetition in the prayer, the liturgical prayer, the private prayer, it's throughout the life of the church and it, you, you can't really escape it. One example of this is uh, during a, a meeting uh, in the, the 20, early 20th century between leading Christian thinkers you know, someone approached a famous Eastern Orthodox theologian, Sergei Bulgakov, and said, why don't you Orthodox, and he could have very easily said Eastern Catholics, but why don't you Orthodox have have a, a social doctrine for your church? And uh, this noted scholar and holy priest looked at him and said, we do. It's called the dogma of the most holy trinity. <laughs> and everything, everything comes from that source. And so, you know, when other churches start talking about their social doctrine and everything, for us, 
it all comes down to the Holy Trinity. And and when you go into our, our services, uh, I mean, you, you can't escape the incarnational aspect of an Eastern Catholic Church, the, the singing. There are no instruments in mm-hmm. an Eastern mm-hmm. Catholic Church. Is that uh, the Eastern Catholic Churches, I'm speaking principally of the, in the Byzantine tradition, their worship is full body worship, you know, full body contact. It's it's full body worship uh, in that our singing is is from the best instrument ever made, the human voice. Mm-hmm. Um, our our worship that we offer to God isn't just in voice, though. It's also in you know the smells. Uh, we use every sense. It's just cover clouds of incense. It's in uh, visual overload with our iconography, and it's in this physical. Is that you're doing making the sign of the cross? I don't know how many hundred times, hundreds of times during the mm-hmm. during the, the liturgy, and we're doing you know prostrations and whatnot during certain times of the year. So that type of spirituality is kind of foreign to our world now. Uh, but if we just go back even a few generations, we'd see that uh, that was very much part of the Christian tradition, uh, especially the Eastern Christian tradition of having a, a worship that's incarnational. And then, I mean, I don't want to go on for too long on the question, but there's always the patristic point, you know, is uh, other churches have always tried to find uh, the good and the holy in the world now. And to try and, you know, uh, take out the good and the holy from what they can find around them today and to elevate that and shed the gospel on that and see how is God working through that good. The Eastern approach has, is quite different. You know, I, I'm thinking of St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who said, uh, you know, that the faith we have was foretold by prophets, it was uh, carried out by Christ, it was delivered to the church by the apostles and handed down by her uh, to her children throughout the world. And that act of handing it down, it was, it was given by the church fathers. Mm. And we, we have a real, um, a real love and devotion to those first generations of Christian uh, bishops who uh, handed on the faith and we again and again call upon them for their prayers, and we we read their writings, we we emulate them. So that's a strong uh, characteristic of Eastern Catholicism is its patristic influence. And I've I've already said the liturgical, but everything really comes out of the liturgical life. Our catechesis is derived from our liturgical texts. You know, our uh, theology of of grace, our theology of of salvation, it it all derives from our understanding of the Eucharistic liturgy. And when you do theology, I remember I took in seminary a moral theology class, and we just read the writings and part of the liturgy of of St. Basil the Great, you know. Mm -hmm. The, the faith isn't so complicated that it needs to be reinvented every few generations. It's been given to us once for all, you know. Mm. And so we go back to the sources, and, and the sources, obviously, not, not the, the fathers, as beautiful as they are, but it's the, the cult, you know, the worship, mm-hmm. uh, the liturgy, and specifically the, the fount and summit of, of that is the Eucharist. Um, I guess the, the final thing is, is unity, you know. What makes us distinct from Orthodox and from the Roman Catholics is really the Eastern Catholics, we're the only guys really who are are testifying to the unity of the Church. And Mm -hmm. that sounds off-putting, but uh, the reason I say that is because without the Eastern Church's presence in the communion of the Catholic Churches, uh, really the, 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 the Latin Church would cease to be Catholic in a sense, because it wouldn't really be universal. It would be reduced to uh, a church that is one particular tradition, you know. Mm-hmm. And what, what is an Eastern Catholic? An Eastern Catholic is one who stands in communion with Western and Eastern Christians 
in the patristic tradition, in union with Rome, testifying to the unity of the Church with our blood, and just by our, our being uh, being present. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was John Paul II that referenced breathing with both lungs in reference to the yes. Eastern and Western churches. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think it is really important for us Roman Catholics to remember that uh, we are not the only game in town <laughs> when it comes to Catholicism, and that there is another world and another perspective that represents all those beautiful things uh, that you just talked about. And definitely at Eastern liturgies, uh, you definitely feel the connection, the really ancient connection uh, with tradition that we can definitely learn from in the West, I think. So springboarding on that, can you expound a little bit on the differences between the understandings of the sacrament of marriage? Because I know we both see marriage as a sacrament, but there mm -hmm. are differences in the rites. So could you just um, explain a little bit about that? Well, it all, all goes back, obviously, to Genesis, you know, where, where the Lord God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, and a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then moving up a few a few pages in the Bible, we come to Hebrews, where we hear St. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, saying, you know, let marriage be held in honor by all. This is our common tradition, right? Mm -hmm. It's Judaic, and it's it's apostolic. And, of course, the one who, who typifies and embodies this is Christ himself, the bridegroom. Now, uh, differences have developed, and, uh, you know, that, that's a whole lecture in and of itself, but the, the, the differences essentially are one of martyrology, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and one of a theology of blessing. So when you walk into an Eastern church, we Eastern Christians, Eastern Catholics, view the sacrament, uh, we call it the sacraments, not sacraments, but we call them mysteries, mm -hmm. because we, we wouldn't really understand these things had God not revealed, himself, uh, revealed them to us. We understand matrimony as a mystery that's conveyed by the blessing of a priest on the bride and the groom. The Latin theology is quite different on that, and the Latin theology is that this is a sacrament that's you know shared and given between the spouses, and the priest is there to to witness to mm -hmm. it basically. But this is an example of how in the Catholic Church we have unity, but not uniformity. You can have a family, and you're all related, all you know, you're 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 of the same family, same mom, same dad, same household, but you have differences in the house. You know, one sister likes to clean house one way, another sister does it completely opposite. Mm -hmm. um, and same in the church is that we have different theologies, and our theology of marriage, as I just said, is quite different here. We we believe that this is something conveyed by the blessing of a priest, and looking at the actual uh, ritual itself, it's quite different. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big differences of course, is the crown. We use a crown, and we say that uh, the couple are crowned in marriage. And there are two, two reasons for that. One is that uh, St. John Chrysostom speaks about, in the fourth century, about the husband and the wife are being crowned as you know, rulers in their little domestic church. So this this positive affirming view of of marriage goes right back to you know Christendom. Other church fathers weren't always so uh, explicitly supportive of of the holiness and, and beauty of it, but uh, Christendom was. And uh, so that that's what the crown symbolizes. There is that 
this man, this woman are heads of their domestic church, but also they're crowned as martyrs. And and this is you know we you've all read in in uh, Saint Paul you know says you know pursue the you know the uh, be, be witnesses of Christ um, and that's what a martyr is and so uh, how do we march how do we witness or martyr to Christ uh, in matrimony well we read in Ephesians the husband is to love his bride as Christ loved the church and Christ loved the church how by self-sacrifice, by laying down his life for her. And so at that point, after the husband and wife have been crowned in the ritual, they uh, do a, a circumambulation. They walk three times around this, uh, this tetrapod. It's like a little altar, but it's not the main altar. They walk around it three times as everyone in the church sings, O oh, Holy Martyrs, uh, because they're going to witness to the love of Christ. How? Through their self-sacrificing love, especially uh, of the of the husband, he's called to that uh, that profound Christ-like uh, self-emptying, and uh, it's done where it's done through his common life, where they become one flesh in this holy and sacred mystery of matrimony. Well, yeah, that's really beautiful. <laughs> um, what does marriage prep look like uh, in Eastern Catholicism? Yeah, I think that that's pretty similar. There isn't really a um, a whole lot different in regards to that. So I, I uh, um, I'm, some of the catechesis is a little different, but I mean, you still have the same problems. You know, we're we're we're, we're living in the same society here in North mm-hmm. America with the same problems. So regardless if someone's an Eastern Catholic or a, or a, a Roman Rite Catholic, uh, they they still face the exact same. Uh, you know, temptations of the flesh and uh, of the world and the flesh and the devil and all of those things. So the, the preparation is, is not terribly different, except for kind of the, the theology that I just explained to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, regarding the, uh, you know, the, the issue of, for example, divorce, uh, remarriage, I know that's, uh, that's been in, in, the, in the news a lot lately mm-hmm. uh, regarding the, the, the question uh, circulating in Rome with the dubia that the cardinals, some of the cardinals have submitted to the Holy Father. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our teaching is the same as the teaching of the Universal Church, that, mm-hmm. that, that marriage is an icon. Well, this is a particularly Eastern take on it, but you know, marriage is an icon of God's marriage with Israel is that if even if Israel is not faithful, God Himself will be faithful. Um, as Christ is faithful to the Church, so a husband is to be faithful to his wife. Well, what if what if the Church isn't? What if Israel isn't faithful to God? God will still be faithful. Well, what if 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 people in the Church uh, commit apostasy, commit heresy, uh, commit sacrilege? Will Christ still be faithful to the Church? Absolutely. Um, and uh, you know, the same is true for our understanding of marriage, is that you know, we, we don't allow ma- divorce. First of all, it's not because we're making up the rules, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, but we're just doing this out of, uh, out of obedience to the words of the one we love, Jesus, who said that what God has united, let no man uh, put asunder. And uh, so our, our teaching is the same on that. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox have a different understanding of that, and uh, uh, but we're not Eastern Orthodox. And uh, so now in the realities, the pastoral realities, you know, they're they're painful. They're uh, we can't just live in the world of academic theology and, mm-hmm. and forget about the reality that hey, a lot of these really great people in our pews are are suffering. Their their uh, husbands cheated on them. Their wives cheated on them. You know, their marriages broke apart. In God's eyes, those are still marriages, but by being faithful when your spouse was unfaithful, 
is a witness to the whole world and to the whole church of Christ's grace and love dwelling in you. And through the way you handle that act of infidelity or that pain and division, the way you respond to that is maybe the way you're going to become a saint. You know, this is the stage that you've been put on. And uh, this is the, the cross that you've been given. Everyone has a cross, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, through the, the, the manner in which you, you carry this cross, uh, you will be glorified. Yeah, it, it is painful, and especially painful is the fact that, you know, Christians in our world today have the same divorce rate as those who are non-Christians. And we Christians really should be giving a, an example to the world of, of Christ-like fidelity. And uh, so it, it is a painful part of our of our life right now. But whether we're Eastern Catholics or Roman Catholics, is we want to do everything we can to witness with our lives to Christ's fidelity to us. Mm. Yeah, very beautifully said. Well, moving on a little bit. Uh, so one uh, major difference, even though we are in communion, I do want to just reemphasize that a little bit, that the Eastern Catholics are in communion with Rome. But your practice of ordaining married men to the priesthood is one big difference that can be a little bit uh, hard for Roman Catholics to kind of process in our minds yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Um, and I know that it have, has a complicated history uh, in this country, <laughs> especially I was reading a little bit. Of, there's definitely been some tension in this country with this issue, but it it seems like now the Latin bishops are accepting that this is a tradition from the East that we can respect. So can you talk a little bit about the ordination of married men? Yes, absolutely. This is really a, a point of catechesis. You know, we, we've seen since the council here in, in uh, um, North America and Western Europe, since the Second Vatican Council, there's been a real um, a breakdown in, in catechesis. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the, the unfortunate things of that is people not really knowing the difference um, perhaps through no fault of their own, but not knowing the difference between uh, what is the apostolic faith that we're called to to live our whole lives with and by and in, and what are the disciplines? Mm, exactly, yeah. And no article of the faith can be tampered with. No pope, no bishop, no priest, no deacon, no baptized Christian, nobody ever has the authority to tamper with the holy faith that was delivered once for all. No one has the authority to tamper with the Word of God. And uh, that is, uh, I mean, Cardinal Muller made a, made a comment about that a few months ago, that you know, no one in the Church, no authority in the Church can uh, play with the Word of God. It, it's the Church that's at the service of interpreting the Word of God. The Word of God is Christ. And so the issue of married priesthood is not an issue of uh, the apostolic faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a discipline. And, you know, disciplines are uh, tools that you can uh, use to the advantage of saving souls, to the advantage of the growth of God's kingdom on earth. Uh, and we look at the Latin church, for example, you know, with the discipline of, of using Latin in, in uh, her worship, is that that discipline was, was uh, put aside in favor of the vernacular after uh, 1965. So 
that doesn't mean that the faith changed, it just means a particular discipline changed. Mm-hmm. So w- with married priesthood, that falls under that same distinction of, of discipline. And really, it, 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 it calls us to look back to the roots of the, of the faith and the roots of the church. You know, we know that Peter, if we look in Luke chapter 4, that he was married and he had a mother-in-law. And uh, <laughs> you probably heard the, the, the joke that, uh, you know, why did, why did Peter deny Christ three times? Why? Because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and uh, there are other words, too, though, uh, you know, not just in Luke's uh, account of Peter uh, having a mother-in-law. You know, we also know from, you know, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, I think it's the ninth chapter, that uh, where, where St. Paul says, don't we have a right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas, of course, being Peter. It's It's an ancient practice of the Church, and when people today say, oh, I'm in favor of, of the Catholic Church having married priests, I, I like say, well, it already has married priests. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's had married priests for, uh, for 2,000 years. Now, with, with, with my brothers and sisters who are you know, faithful Catholics, who are trying to live holy lives and trying to abide by the perennial teachings of the Church, uh, this issue can be thorny because uh, those who bring it up often are those who are in favor of homosexuality, who are in favor of contraception, who are in favor of women priesthood, and uh, also married priesthood. So once this issue is brought up, married priesthood, you know, light bulbs go off, and mm-hmm. oh, oh my, they're, they're thinking of these other things. Well, this is a case where uh, they've mixed peaches and, and pineapples, mm-hmm. um, is that those other things pertain to the deposit of the faith, which, as I said earlier, you can't change. But the question of married priesthood, that, that is, uh, um, that, that's a discipline. Yeah, and we do definitely tend to forget that it is a discipline and that for uh, hundreds of years in our church, uh, priests were married. Roman Catholics, I think, we, I don't know, sometimes have a really narrow view of history, (laughs) it seems like, or we think that the way that things are now are the way that things have always been. Mm, yes, it, it is true. I mean, in, in the Latin Church, there was uh, there was the practice of married priesthood for for a while, and you know, by the Council of Trullo, we know that that it it really was being discouraged. But I mean, that that's their own particular tradition, and I have no right to to critique them and or to lecture them on on their tradition. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, if you want to look at it numerically, it seems to have worked for the Latins. I mean, let's be very honest here, is that a, a celibate priest has a, an evangelical freedom about him mm-hmm. uh, to pick up and, and start a mission in Paraguay. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- with me, with the eight eight of us in my household, uh, I don't have that kind of freedom, you know. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, uh, there's a definite, a definite practical quality and an, an evangelical quality to it. But yeah, it, it, it has been part of their tradition as well. Um, but I, I'm, not, I'm not one to, to lecture them on, on what they should, you know, uh, embrace as a new or revived uh, uh, discipline. Just like I don't, I don't particularly like it when, you know, certain prelates have said within our living memory um, that we shouldn't, be, uh, we shouldn't be around. And uh, I, I'm not particularly fond of that either. Right. Yeah, I I want to do want to make clear that I'm not uh definitely not trying to disparage <laughs> priests that are celibate uh, because I definitely have seen some uh really inspiring and holy examples, but um I do think it is valuable to look at things with a different perspective sometimes and see what we can learn. So, are there any ways in which your own marriage has been impacted by your role as priest or vice versa? Like, has your ministry been informed by your marriage? 
Uh, well, let me uh, take a step back, uh, and if I don't answer that question, just kind of repeat it. But let me take a step back because I, I, I was very much against married priesthood uh, mm. when I first encountered this, and uh, I was living in Ukraine. And uh, to be uh, to be quite honest, I, I looked down upon it as a concession to weakness or as you know what have you. Uh, that was my own kind of prejudice coming through. But I, I just kind of tolerated it. And but until one day, I I thought, you know what? Cause I, Look at this couple here, and uh, this couple, I was astounded, is he was a priest, and he and his wife were sent to Siberia, but it was the wife who chose to go instead of the priest, because uh, here the, 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 the Soviets had come and had given him a chance to, to leave the Catholic Church and to become Russian Orthodox. And he would have his parish and a nice income and all that stuff. Nothing would change. Everything would be the same as it always is, except during the liturgy, instead of praying for the Pope of Rome, he would pray for the Patriarch of Moscow. And uh, he, was, he was about to go along with it, but it was his wife. It was his wife who said, no, hmm. that's not the faith we believe in. That's not the church we belong to. And we're packing up, and we're going out to Siberia, and we'll do our sentence out there for however long it was, 20 years or something like that. So, so sometimes people think, oh, you know, you can't really have a married priesthood because if a persecution comes along or difficulties, you know, a man's going to have to choose his family over, over the, you know, the difficulties, the, the pressures, the unbelievable pressures that would put before him. But when I was in Ukraine, I, I met people who, who faced those pressures, and oddly enough, it was the wife of the priest who was the one that was the, the you know, the, the moral backbone of that. Um, so uh, how that impacts me is that that changed my view. I thought, wow, uh, these people here, the, the, the church of the, of the martyrs, the, the, the church of the catacomb, uh, the, uh, the underground Catholics in Eastern Europe and in Ukraine, is they gave their lives for the faith. Um, and their priests are no less holy than my our priests back in who you know in, in North America who are celibate, these guys are married. They have kids. They're happy. They have parishes. This is possible. And so I, my eyes kind of opened up. My heart opened up a little bit. And um, so uh, uh, that was the beginning of of my change of heart on that issue. But ways it's impacted me as a priest is that my my wife is everything to me. She's my uh, my arms in ministry. There are certain things that uh, a man cannot do, you know, just just plain common sense things. You know, I, I can't develop a close relationship with the young family next door, the husband's away all day, you know, the, the young mother's out there with her kid. It wouldn't be right for me to be hanging around them all the time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my wife can, and she mm-hmm. does. And, you know, we, we've we've brought in a number of young families in our parish because of that. And so that that's one way that it's really affected my priesthood is that I've gotten to know, I call it the evangelism of 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 uh, the evangelism of family living. You know, is is we're just friends with these families and on the street, and and they uh, they come into the parish. Uh, so that's one way that that my marriage has has been uh, um, uh, and it has impacted my priesthood. Hmm. Uh, I guess another way is is uh, regarding ways in which my ministry is informed by my marriage. Definitely, uh, and I'm not saying I'm I'm perfect on this by any means, but my ministry is informed by my marriage because it's the constant reminder of of self-sacrifice. When I want to be selfish, 
I can't. I have my wife there to remind me <laughs> of it, you know, which is, I think, you know, what, what monastic living is for. You know, that's what monastic living is for. Those holy men who live in monasteries, uh, they're there building each other up, becoming living stones in the kingdom of God, becoming holy priests, becoming holy monks, because they're there to, you know, like like uh, two knives sharpen each other. And, and that's what, uh, for me as a married priest, that's what my marriage does for me, is that uh, she's always kind of uh, reminding me of, of how, how to improve. Um, and if I didn't have her there to speak frankly to me, you know, this wasn't a very good homily, you didn't prepare very well, <laughs> this is happening, you didn't do anything here, um, I, I don't know how I would do it if I didn't have her, because, you know, let's be honest, a, a lot of priests uh, who don't have that advantage I don't know if they have a constant daily reminder of how they need to improve uh, in the parish. You know, I don't, maybe their secretaries or their deacons have a have a you know closeness with them that affords them the luxury of saying, "Hey, Father, you didn't do this, 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 and this, and you better do it next time." I, I get that positively uh, expressed to me by my wife quite often. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so that's that, that's been a big help. Wow. Okay. So you definitely don't see it anymore as. Uh, kind of an outlet for weakness. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it, you know, we, we Christians look at the crucifixion. We look at the crucifixion and we see victory, right? The world looks at crucifixion and they see defeat and shame. And, and that's what each sacrament, uh, like the sacrament of, of, of holy orders, sacrament of marriage, in a way is a crucifixion. You know, it's a dying to self. A man dies to self so as to serve the church at ordination. A man dies to self so as to serve his wife, that together they may, uh, they may climb the ladder of heaven. And, and so uh, I, I don't see them as in competition. I see them both as, as you know, mutual aids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that there isn't uh, difficulty sometimes. Like, the fact is, is you know, I, I'll spend more time doing church work than with my wife sometimes, uh, more often than I should. Um, and uh, the kids need a father, and I'm I'm not always able to to be there. So that's, you know, that that's a real that's a real difficulty. There, there there's an evening service, especially during Lent. You know, they may have a gymnastics meet, they may have, you know, a school musical, and uh, I. You know, I, I, I miss out on those things. So there, there is pain involved. There is pain involved. And, uh, but it, it's kind of like um, soil, you know, the soil that feeds a plant. For a celibate priest, his celibacy is a vocation within his vocation of priesthood. And if it's uh, watered with uh, prayer, then that soil produces a rich crop. And uh, the soil that I've been planted in is, this, is the soil of, of my uh, marriage and family, with, and uh, um, hopefully through prayer and through uh, cooperating with the grace that the Lord gives me that uh, my priesthood is able to flower out of that and produce fruit for God. Hmm. Well, that's a really nice way of looking at it. I have to kind of confess that mostly I've been in favor of priestly celibacy for kind of a different reason, and it's because I'm Roman Catholic, but my uh, dad is actually a Methodist minister. And Oh, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> yes. Um, and so even though I didn't grow up full-time with him, I still, as the child of a pastor, felt a kind of pressure to be someone that I didn't feel like I was. Yes. And so could you comment a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that's this is really the um, kind of a, the downside of of a married priesthood is that um, 
kids don't have a dad a lot of the time. I was visiting a prison today uh, doing some prison ministry, and I was reading some statistics there that uh, something like 90% of the inmates uh, don't have a father figure in their lives. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that you know, that, that's that's very much true with uh, what we call PKs, you know, pastor's yeah. <laughs> kids, uh, is that they don't have a, a father present in their lives as much as other kids do uh, who are you know, living in intact marriages because, you know, dad's away, he's uh, visiting someone in the hospital or he's um, you know, doing doing things that priests do. Uh, so that is a, a real uh, a real danger. Um, and the, the the reality is, is a lot of those, a lot of the kids... Um, end up, you know, turning on the faith. We look at the Russian Revolution, and we know that a disproportionate number of uh, those who embraced uh, the, the revolution in Russia uh, were, you know, uh, sons of priests. Oh, wow. um, it, it was a way of, of uh, rebelling. Uh, so it is, um, you know, it's not all, like, we can't, we can't talk about married priesthood with rose-colored glasses. There, there is some reality here, and the reality is, is that if if uh, the the man isn't uh, first careful of the good entrusted to him of his own family, he may save other families but lose his own. Mm-hmm. So that is a danger. So are there things that you do with your girls uh, in order to prevent that? Well, today I took I had to make a, a sick call at a nursing home. So I uh, instead of leaving my 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 nine year old home alone, I I took her and she was she was in the room with me as I I brought communion to this lady. So uh, so that's I don't do that too too often um, because people want you know privacy sometimes. But mm-hmm. I do that once in a while. But uh, other times I just uh, you know block off you know a couple hours here and say. Well, we're going out, and I leave the phone behind, uh, things like that. But I also include them in, in uh, you know, a youth group so that uh, uh, we started a youth group here, and we made it a really good youth group, I have to say. I'm kind of very proud of it. <laughs> and uh, I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do this, we've got to do it really well so that my kids would be proud of attending it, so that my kids would uh, clear their social calendars not only to attend it, but to bring their friends to attend it. And so that, that's one way, I've, that's one thing uh, we've done here to kind of bring the two together. So I take them out. We went out to the Adirondack Mountains up in upstate New York uh, a month ago, and it was a fantastic experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, our, my girls were there, and uh, uh, the parish kids were there, and we all had a good time together. So that, that's one way I, I, I get around it. Oh, that's good. That, that's really good to hear. So are there, I know that you have shared already some insights uh, referencing the Eastern Church Fathers, but um, are there any other insights or wisdom you can share, especially for us uh, Roman Catholics that may not be as familiar with that tradition about uh, marriage or sexuality? Hmm. You know, I... I uh... I'll put it to you this way, is, is that uh, I think our age really over-fixates over on, uh, <laughs> on the questions of, of sex. I mm-hmm. mean, they, and uh, when you look at the Church Fathers, they, um, they addressed it, but it was done within the Word of God, within prayer, which is theology itself. You know, he who prays is a theologian. And so th- these questions were done within the uh the body of the church within 
the scriptures. And our age tends to dissect, you know, it's a, it's the age of the laboratory and we kind of dissect the, the question of sexuality and we look at it outside of our common life in the word of God and in the life of the church. So you don't get a whole lot of treaties from the patristic era just on, on sex mm-hmm. and, um, we, you know, we have to be very honest that a lot of the discussion isn't uniform because mm-hmm. some saints disagreed with other saints, mm-hmm. uh, and they were still saints. You know? right. And uh, we look at, for example, the approach that St. Augustine had towards sex, and we look at the approach that, for example, St. John Chrysostom had, which was very noble, and they're, they're quite different. So, you know, St. John Chrysostom, as I, I quoted earlier, uh, he had this great view of marriage. You know, this you, you guys are, are mutual helpers. Uh, you guys are a king and queen uh, crowned in the, the realm uh, of your domestic church. You guys are one body, meaning that through uh, this union, you will have one heart and one mind in Christ. That's what one flesh means, to be one flesh. And um, uh, so, so those are the, the, the key things. On, on that question, like I said, uh, the, the church fathers were, were God obsessed, and mm. they, they discussed sexuality, you know, only in so far as it really uh, related to the glory of God. Uh, <laughs> I think our age, I think our age is a little bit different in that it, it'll only talk about God in so far as it glorifies sex. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, I think we are definitely influenced by the outer culture, and in some ways, we kind of fight fire with fire a little bit it seems like yeah when it comes to those issues but i did um hear recently one of the reasons why i wanted to ask you it was at a talk on poetry actually and so i don't even remember why he brought this example up but it was something about in the context of figuring out when your most kind of fertile periods are for work and for writing and everything and figuring out mm-hmm. like being able to work with your natural rhythms of your body and your life. Uh, but so for some reason he brought up that the church fathers had a really kind of an interesting way of looking at dealing with sexual temptation, which is to look at it like a leaf floating down a river. And so you can look at it and acknowledge that it's there, but not really try to wrestle with it and just kind of watch it float by. And I thought that that was a really cool way of looking at things. Yeah, a lot of this actually um, uh, comes from uh, what we call the centuries or the sentences. Um, and the centuries or sentences were uh, collections of sayings that the, the holy men in the desert and holy women in the desert as well said uh, regarding the ascetical life, the spiritual life. And uh, so when we do find discussions and writings about uh, sexuality and, and, and whatnot in the, uh, in the ancient East, it's, we have to remember that it's done where? In monasteries. It's mm-hmm. done in the context of monks discussing uh, the, the purification of the heart, mm-hmm. okay, and attaining this, this state of watchfulness. And uh, to have that watchfulness to have that uh, state of passionlessness of the heart, apatheia, um, they would go to uh, a staretz, an elder, and they would reveal their thoughts. And some of the best advice uh, that these, these elders gave to these young monks uh, were written down. 
and you can get them in books, you know, uh, the sayings of the Desert Fathers and what have you. Um, and in that context, a lot of the discussion about sexuality is about uh, resisting the, the thought. Mm-hmm. How do you overcome the thought? Because in the spiritual battle, which the, the demons try to wage against us, is they seek to uh, hunt down our souls, not by you know, showing how they really look, you know, look at me, I got this forked tail and these horns and all that want to follow me. No one's going to follow the devil when he's like that. So he comes at us in uh, incredibly enticing and attractive forms. And then he's a shapeshifter. Then he reveals what his true identity is when we're already trapped. So um, the the demons would attempt uh, these young ascetics, and they would do it through different different means. One of them was, was the sexual. Uh, so the, the the writings we have in the early church about sexuality are often writings from these desert fathers of how to overcome the, the thoughts and temptations of, of fornication. Um, so those are the primary texts uh, that, that we find uh, on that. Mm, okay, so that's where that comes from. Yeah, yeah. So uh, another image that the early fathers used, uh, you you used the beautiful image of a leaf going down a stream. Uh, One monk came to an elder and said, you know, how do I battle? Uh, I I don't want these thoughts. He's talking about the thoughts of lust. Um, And I can't remember if this is uh, Elder Piman or if this is uh, uh, Macarius the Great, um, but one of them, um, it may have been Anthony, I don't know, said that, well, can you you control if... uh, if if a bird decides to sit on your head? <laughs> well, no. Well, no, said the young monk. Well, what do you do when a bird sits on your head? And the young monk says, well, I just shoo it away. Good. Well, what if he comes back 20 times in a day? What do you do with it? Well, I just shoo him away 20 times. And the elder says, well, what about 100 times? What do you do if he comes and lands on your head 100 times? He perches there. Why well, just shoo him away 100 times? Well, good. Do the same thing with the thoughts of lust. Hmm. And... Uh, it's not your fault. You know, we, we have these temptations. They come, they fall on us from the demons. And um, uh, our, our choice is to either accept those thoughts and l- let them seep in and go from just thoughts into action, or do we shoo them away at every instance? Uh, so that's, that's the other image that they used regarding temptations that the demons throw our way regarding uh, sins against the, uh, the sixth commandment. Oh, well, that's that's really cool. Do you have any other insights uh, just in general that you would like to share? Any well, words to end on? Well, yeah, like uh, on the topic of marriage is that when we go to the Church Fathers, we Eastern Catholics love the, the, the Church Fathers. We have to remember that uh, the Church Fathers are the first witnesses of fresh love that fresh love that the church had for Christ in her youth. You, you all know what it's like to fall in love for the first time and how wonderful and powerful that is and how invigorating and beautiful it is. And then as you grow older, you know that love grows cold and uh, we forget our first love. Um, but if you want to get a sense of the church's first love for her master, Jesus Christ, when her love was warm and was zealous Read the Church Fathers, and they're, they're full of truth. They don't mix it up in any way. They just tell it like it is, but it's so full of, of, of beauty. Um, we were just talking uh, about the, the topic of marriage. Um, you know, I, I'm just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of St. Clement of Alexandria, uh, who says that you know, marriage is 
the, the first conjunction of man and woman for the procreation of children. It's a simple statement, but it's a simple statement we don't hear a lot today. You know, this is the first end of marriage. Uh, people don't want to share that simple truth. Um, but marriage is for children. It's for procreation. Uh, the unitive aspect is, is beautiful as well. But uh, for the first, you know, uh, 1900 years of Christianity, uh, it was very straightforward in her proclamation of that truth, that marriage is first and foremost for the procreation and the education of children. But that, that, that's kind of our experience of the early church. We love the, the simplicity and the forthrightness of the, the, uh, the church fathers, and we try and bring that out in our worship and in our spirituality and in our daily living as Eastern Catholics in the modern world. Mm. Well, that's beautiful. And I definitely would like to encourage any Roman Catholics, if they might be curious, to seek out an Eastern Catholic church, because especially um, for me, it's been really meaningful. You know, if you feel like you kind of get in a spiritual rut, it can be really illuminating to go to go to a different tradition and uh, and hear things in a different way. You know, we we hold the same faith, but Sometimes it's just expressed in a different way, and that can open your eyes to different facets of it. Definitely, the words of your liturgies are just really beautiful and poetic. <laughs> and, uh, I have really loved attending your liturgies. Well, glory to God. Glory <laughs> to God. And uh, our, our job is, I mean, we can't take the credit for it. You know, we, we simply are... Our, uh, our our servants, our slaves, and uh, our job is to uh, pass on what we ourselves have received. And this is the uh, the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, and we we try and uh, pass it on uh, in an undefiled manner, uh, without adding anything to it, without subtracting anything from it, just to pass it on so that it can stand on its own terms, and its own terms are uh, pure and undefiled love of Christ and the Holy Trinity. Uh, so I, yes, please, please attend a, a local Catholic church um, in the the Byzantine tradition. I mean, there there are many traditions. There are 23 churches within the Catholic Church, and yeah. I belong to the Ukrainian Catholic. But uh, we're all the Ukrainian Catholics and the Byzantines were from the constant Constantinopolitan tradition. But there are are many other Eastern Catholic churches: the Syro Malabars, uh, the Maronites, the, uh, the Melkites, the Chaldeans, the Copts, the Armenians, the Georgians. I mean, the list is quite extensive. Yeah. Uh, so so. And it can be a little bit intimidating at first because, well, first of all, you're not even really sure what language the liturgy is going to be. And sometimes, you know, the websites are, are can be a little bit obscure in that way. Yeah. <laughs> this is a case where our, our salvation has been our handicap. You know, mm -hmm. our salvation was that we were able to hide under our ethnic garb for centuries and we were able to survive. And I'm speaking about the time since the, the sacking of Constantinople in 1453 by the Islamic uh, armies. And uh, as a result, the, the, the world's largest Christian empire collapsed, the Byzantine Empire. And uh, since then, our churches existed as ethnic ghettos. We were allowed to exist um, as subjugated, subjugated peoples um, by paying the jizya to, uh, to, to the Muslims. And uh, we were allowed to exist as simply an ethnic enclave. And, 
here we are today, you know, but that, that was good. Otherwise, they, we wouldn't have existed at all. Mm-hmm. But the bad thing is, is that now we're not living under a caliphate anymore, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we we don't need to um, have the uh, the cloak of ethnicity as the safeguard for existence. Um, now is the time to uh, to maintain and to uh, explode out from that uh, so that uh, those who don't know Christ can now discover him in the fullness and the richness that is the uh, the, the the Eastern Catholic tradition. Mm. Yeah, and and actually, you know, I I was intimidated for a long time, but then I realized that you know the resources are there. It's kind of like going for us to the Tridentine Mass for the first time. You know, it it yeah. can be like really scary, and it just really feels really foreign, especially you know those of us that were born well after Vatican II, but you know, there are resources and and there are ways of not feeling so lost. And then ultimately you can really lose yourself in the beauty of the liturgy um, and, and in the worship. And that's really the more important thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think our, our, uh, our tradition is uh, needed now more than ever because mm-hmm. we live in an age which is so um, me centered mm-hmm. that we need an antidote to that. And the antidote to a me centered life is a God-centered worship, uh, and you go you go east, and uh, we all face towards east. We all face towards the Lord, and um, it, it's not about us. It's not entertainment in the music. It's not psychotherapy in the in the, in the homilies. It, it's all Christocentric. Um, I mean, it's almost all Christocentric. I'm sure that you might encounter uh, a few bad parishes here or there, which are trying to. Maybe they're not following the tradition as as diligently as they could, mm-hmm. um, but the tradition in and of itself uh, is is Christocentric, and uh, I think that's the great medicine that our culture needs is um, to, to turn down the volume on me and turn it up on him. Mm. Well, that's a really wonderful note to end on. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Father Jason Sharon, for uh, talking with me today. Well, thank you very much, and may uh, the good Lord bless you and um, and all of your, uh, your your listeners. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. This has been another episode of Fishers of Men. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com or find us on our website at fishersofmenpodcast.com. We are also on Facebook under Fishers of Men. Follow us on Twitter at at LA Gone Fishing or on Instagram at Fishers of Men Podcast. There is an underscore after each word. Please also remember to rate and make comments on iTunes if you feel so inclined. It's really important so that other people can discover our podcast. I'm Larson Mary Sams. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. Until next time, keep swimming.